Welcome to the First Baptist Church Brunswick podcast. Join us as we desire to lead people into a deep and thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, amen, amen. Can we give a hand clap of praise again to Brittany and our worship team for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you so much. God is worthy. He is worthy to open the seals that nobody can. And we come here to worship and celebrate the name of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I'm sure uh, that you do, would you please take them out and go to the Old Testament book, the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We began a brand new series last week, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun, and that was an introduction to our series. And today we're going to look a little bit more uh, deeply into chapter 1 as we look at Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. And as you are uh, turning in your Bible, you can follow along the screen behind me as well, or there's a Bible in the the chair back in front of you, but you can follow along as we study God's Word as as we will be going going verse by verse through this book as best as we can. But uh, as you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I want to ask you a question as we begin uh, this morning's uh, message. Have you ever failed to ask a question because you thought it might make you look dumb? Can, Can I see your hands go up anywhere? Yeah, some of you are like, I'm not answering that question because then I'll look dumb. So that kind of defeats the whole purpose right there. But yeah, many of us are in that, in that category, right? And many times uh, we don't want to ask a question because we're afraid that it might make us look a little, a little dumb. I've done that many times in my life and too many times I've allowed uh, my own desire to not look foolish to keep me from asking uh, questions. Um, Richard Thalmeyer, who is a, an entrepreneur and inventor and founder of the company Sharper Image, he said this, it is better to look uninformed than to be uninformed. Questions, questions. One of the complaints that has so often come against the church of Jesus Christ is this, the church doesn't wrestle with the hard questions of life. And a lot of times that complaint comes because when when students who grow up in the church go off to college, they are met with secular humanism, atheism, and these professors who reject all things of Christianity and many students will turn from the faith, and then they began to fall for the lie that the church doesn't wrestle with the hard questions of life. You at one point may have asked yourself this question, do we really wrestle with the hard things? And maybe you have even said something like that as well, but but the reality is the church has never run from hard questions in its existence. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the church is in existence in order to answer the difficult questions of life. The Bible, Christianity, uh, the church exists to answer these questions that, that for all of mankind we have wrestled with. Questions like, what's the purpose of life? Evil, suffering, pain. The questions of of life is something that the church wrestles with, and today in our culture, we must must press into those questions. 
The reason I believe that we need to press into those questions and not shy away from the hard questions of life is really two, two reasons. Number one, when you look at the life of Jesus, whenever Jesus taught, he always used questions. Jesus never ran away from questions. As a matter of fact, if you would ask him a question, he would often respond with a question. He used questions to make his points, and he never ran away from questions. As I uh, was, was studying, as I'm studying this book of Ecclesiastes, um, um, I found a book called uh, All the Questions Jesus Asked by, by the author Stan Guthrie, and, and, and Stan Guthrie counted over 300 questions that Jesus asked. And so as I read through all of those questions, I found one of my favorite questions that I found that Jesus asked uh, was found in John chapter 6 when Jesus uh, fed the 5,000. Now, many of you, you may remember this story. Uh, Jesus and the disciples, they were, uh, had these large group of people. Uh, Jesus had just finished teaching them. They are on the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He had just finished teaching and all the crowds were gathered around. And as he finished teaching, it was, it was dinner time. And Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he asked the question that every single family asks when they leave a Sunday morning worship service. Hey, where are we going to go eat? He asked the question. What are we going to, what are we going to do? What, what are we going to eat? And I'm sure the disciples gave the response that everybody else gives when they ask that question. Where do you want to eat? You always respond with, I don't care where you want to eat. And that's, that's, that's how it works, Right? Well, I I don't really know if that's how the disciples answered that question or not, but I know this, is that Jesus posed the question. And here's what I know as we look at this book of Ecclesiastes, and I want you to write this down. Jesus isn't afraid of your questions. Jesus is not scared of your questions. If you question his validity, that does not scare him. If you question his existence or God's existence, that doesn't scare him. If you question why things happened the way they did, he is not afraid of your questions. God the Father, God the Creator, isn't afraid of any uh, questions that come from his created beings. He's not afraid. And since he is not afraid, we as a church dare not be afraid of the questions that we are asking. Now, let me ask you a question this, uh, this morning. How many of you would say over the past three to five years, three to five, five to ten years, something has happened in your life that you did not cause, but you consider it evil or bad, and to this day, you have no idea why it happened and you have questions. Can I, can I, can I see your hand? There's hands all over the place. There's hands all over the place. We have questions. But the God of the Bible, the God of history, the God of creation is not afraid of our questions. Because one, Jesus asked questions, and number two, there is an entire book in the Bible that is devoted to questions. It's devoted to the hard questions of life. And in Ecclesiastes, we look at the question of, is life really worth living? What purpose is there in life? Is there any meaning to what you and I do here on this earth? 
And so this morning, as we walk through chapter one, uh, we are going to look at this most important question of, is there really meaning to life? And here in Ecclesiastes chapter one, uh, Solomon is going to give us several um, uh, results of living your life under the sun. Now, under the sun means that that means that you're living your life as if, as though you have rejected God, as if God does not exist and you want to live on your own. And so under the sun is a term that you'll see all throughout this book, but it literally means a life without God or a life where you have rejected God. Can you really find meaning in your life? Can you find meaning if you reject the God of the Bible? Can you find meaning if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I'll be honest with you this morning. Today is a very, very tough message. It's a tough message, but I believe it's one that needs to be communicated. It's one that needs to be preached. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard, but we'll be better for it. Are you ready? Look at your neighbor and say, I'm tough enough. Are you? Here we go. Look at verse number one. We're going to walk through this together, and let's find out what the results are of living your life under the sun as you reject God. Number one, verse number one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, We looked at this uh, last week, but in this uh, first verse, we have three things. We see the author's title, his family, and his position. His title is, he is the preacher. Some translations will say the teacher. Um, uh, The Hebrew word is koheleth, means he is a leader of an assembly. It means that he is a preacher who has called an assembly together, and he wants you to listen what he has to say. He's called it together. Now, how can he do that? Look at his family. He is the son of David. Look at his position. He is the king in Jerusalem. Um, Historically, uh, this points to one personality. We know him as Solomon. And so here we have Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, the king of Israel. He's ruling um, ruling the kingdom of Israel at a very prominent time. This is the highlight of the kingdom of Israel. And he's called everybody together, and he wants to share his wisdom with them. Now, one of the questions that I always ask when I study a passage of Scripture is, who is the author and who are the recipients? Because that's going to tell you what it means. Well, scholars will tell us that that Solomon has called an assembly. He's called an assembly of those who live near the temple who live in Jerusalem, and he's called an assembly because this is at the high point of Israel's history, meaning they have a widespread influence all across the Middle East. And scholars have said that right here in Ecclesiastes, as Solomon writes this, the nation Israel is experiencing a new day. A new day has dawned. They have turned away from living a a quiet agricultural existence where they depended upon uh, God to provide their daily bread. And now they are living in an expansion all across the Middle East. They have a booming international trade with Egypt and with Asia and Europe. That's why Solomon married all of those women. And so economically they are, are booming Fortunes in Israel at this time could be made and lost overnight. And scholars will tell us in this era of Israel, the Israelites are scrambling to get rich quick. Hello. You could say they're trying to live the American dream. Are you with me? 
They're trying to live the American dream. And so the Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher, he begins and he's going to say in verse number two, he's going to say, apart from God, you will gain nothing in life. And he says in verse number two, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word vanity, we mentioned it last week, it, it, it references emptiness. It is, it is a waste of life. It is, it is life without God. This is, this is life without a personal relationship to our Creator. And we said last week that vanity of vanities is sort of like eating cotton candy. When you put it in your mouth, it just what? It disappears. Vanity of vanities. Verse number three, he says, and here's the question of Ecclesiastes. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? That word advantage in Hebrew, it means profit. And so when the Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher, Solomon says, what advantage? What he's saying is this, what profit is there? What does it benefit you? What does it benefit you when you live your life under the sun, living a life that rejects God, that rejects the Bible, that rejects Christianity, that rejects Jesus Christ, that rejects that there is a created being, that you are not the creator, that you are not God? He says to his hearers, he says, what benefit is that? What profit is that? When, when you die and you are buried, what profit, what net gain is there to your life when you have passed on and, but you have chosen to live your life under the sun? And so the book of Ecclesiastes is not coming from the point of view of living a biblical worldview. Does that make sense? That's the key to understanding this book. What Solomon is teaching us is this. This is a viewpoint of life this is called a secular worldview. This is secular humanism. This is secular humanism that you and I would agree with, I believe, that is, that is invading our culture even as we speak. Well, what does Solomon go on to say? He's going to give us uh, about four, um, four responses of what's going to happen to you if you choose to live according to society, if you choose to live according to a secular, humanistic, atheistic viewpoint of life. Number one, I want you to write this down. Number one, if you choose to live your life as a rejection of God, number one, life will seem pointless. Life will seem pointless. If you live life under the sun, rejection of God, without God, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, life will seem pointless. Look at verse number four. Verse number four says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Here's what Solomon, the Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher says. He says, you are born into the world, you live your life, and then you die, but the earth keeps on going. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? You're born, you die, the world continues on. It's like when, and many of us do this, we'll go walk on the beach and we'll see our uh, footprints in the sand, but what comes right behind us as we leave our footprints in the sand? What comes? The waves. They come and crash on the beach and it does what to our footprints? It just washes them away. This is what Solomon is saying. You live a life as a as rejection of God, without God, this is it. Life is a pointless. And you look back at verse number four, and you see the phrase, a generation goes and a generation comes. Typically, the saying will go like this, a generation comes and a generation goes. Do you see that? But here, Solomon has reversed it. 
He is reversed and says, a generation goes and then a generation comes. Now, why does he reverse this saying? He reverses it because he's putting the emphasis on the fact that a generation goes, a generation dies, and then that generation is replaced. Here's what he's saying. He says, death happens, but life goes on and you are replaced. I hope you didn't come here this morning feeling a little down because I'm going to put you way down, all right? But this is what he says, death happens in life, life goes on. I, um, I discovered this reality uh, when I was 16 years old. On Halloween night in 1993, uh, my best friend, Tim Gibbs, decided to go to a party where drinking alcohol was involved. Following that party where, again, drinking was involved, unfortunately, Tim did drink. He got into the passenger seat of a friend, got into the passenger seat of a truck driven by a friend that he, by a person he he did not know very well. That person had been drinking more so than Tim. They were coming home. The party was out in the country about 15 miles away from my hometown for where Tim and I lived. They were driving home. The truck missed a turn and threw my best friend out the window, and it killed him instantly. Um, I'll never forget that night. My parents come into my room. They wake me up. It is now early Sunday morning, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and my mom says, let's get into the car. And she says, we're going to drive to Tim's house. And I'll never forget her words. I'll never forget these words as long as I live. She said, Tim's been in an accident, and he didn't make it. I just remember looking out the window of the passenger side of the car. And we drove to Tim's house. We drove to his house, and I spent a lot of my time there, spent the night there, lunch, dinner, breakfast, whatever, knew his family well. And I'll never forget the look of his parents, obviously in complete shock, as we all would be, right? But can I tell you what happened next? The sun came up. The sun came up the very next morning, and life went on. Does that make sense? The world didn't stop. I mean, life kept going. People woke up the next morning, had no idea what had just happened. They kept on living, like knowing, didn't know what happened. Life goes on. And Solomon says here in verse number four, he says this, the earth does not care if you exist or if you do not exist because it's going on with or without you. Well, when you live your life with a rejection of God, here's what's guaranteed for you. You will live a life that is pointless. 
Number two, you will live a life that is tiresome or wearisome or, or tedious. Now, over the next three verses, in verse 5, 6, and 7, Solomon's going to continue with this theme of the earth, that the earth remains forever, that it keeps on keeping on, and he's going to compare the earth to a machine that never stops. Look at verse number 5. He says, the sun rises and the sun sets, and, and hastening to a place, it, it rises there again. That word hastening actually means to pant, as if you're tired. You know how it is when you're tired and you're thirsty and you bend over because you're trying to breathe, you're panting because you're, you're out of breath. This is the Hebrew word that Solomon uses for the sun, that it just continues rising and setting and it's hurrying to its place and it's, the sun is doing this again and again and again and again. And this is the viewpoint of life without God. The sun comes up and it goes down. It comes back up and it goes down. On and on and on. Now, this is a very different viewpoint than a biblical worldview. Amen? From a biblical worldview, the writer of Psalms, Psalm chapter 19, says this about the heavens and the sun. It says, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanses declare the work of his hands. In verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 19, the psalmist says this, that God has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and it rejoices as a strong man to run its course. You see, a biblical worldview with, with, a, with a mind towards God's way, toward God's view of life, the sun rising and setting is a beautiful, it's a glorious thing because each day is a gift of God and it's a way that we can, we can live for him every single day. That's a biblical worldview. But the secular worldview, the atheistic worldview, to them it is the sun rises and the sun sets and it is a painful thing. It's painful. It pants. But it goes on and on and on, verse number six, Solomon now jumps to the wind. He says, blowing towards the south and turning towards the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. And Solomon says that just like the wind blows, life is like a merry-go-round that never stops. How many of you have ever been on a merry-go-round? Isn't that just lovely? It's wonderful. I was thinking, I remember... Uh, I was thinking of this, that uh, I remember as a kid going to the county fair. How many of y'all remember going to the county fairs growing up? Back in the day before uh, uh, correct safety protocols were in, uh, in vogue. Do you remember those moments? You, remember, you know what I'm talking about? You'd get on a ride and you're looking at the person letting you on the ride. You're going, this isn't good. This is not good. Right? And you, do you remember the swing? The swing ride? Remember that? Here's a picture of, that's a... That's a modern one. Students, children, teenagers, that's a modern version of the swing ride. This is what parents, this is what we had. Go to the next one. This is, wait, that's what we had. You remember the chains that barely hanging on? You had one little strap that's holding you in, and this guy that you know, that you know that is, he's putting things into his body that isn't good. He's about to hit the on switch. You know what I'm talking about? He hits the on switch, and that swing goes the speed of sound. You know what I'm talking about? You're praying, dear God, get me off of this swing. Well, Solomon says, this is the wind. It just goes on and on and on. You can never see it, but you know that it's there, and it just continues. He talks about the sun. 
He talks about the wind. And look at verse number seven. He's going to talk about the rain and the rivers and the sea. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Do you get the picture of life? Do you get the picture of life? It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And what's the result of that? Look at verse number 8. Look at the first line of verse number 8. And Solomon says this, And all things are wearisome. It's tedious. It makes you tired. Life is hard. Life is tough. You go to school. You go to work. You come home, eat, take a shower, do homework, watch a TV show, go to bed. And guess what you do the next day? The exact same thing. Boy, life is good, isn't it? Well... One commentary said this, and I love this, and students listen to this. One commentary said this, history can never answer questions about meaning. Science does not answer questions about meaning. The commentary goes on to say this, nature even has limits on what it can answer. Point being is this, you and I can never look to the created to find meaning. You can't look to the created to find meaning. You have to look to the creator to find the meaning. So living life under the sun, rejection of God, pointless, tiresome, and then number three, life can be unfulfilling. Life seems unfulfilling. Look at verse number eight, and there's some ways that men or man responds to life under the sun. Verse number eight, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The Hebrew literally means man cannot speak. He, what he's saying, is, what he's saying is, is man looks at nature. He looks at the wind. He looks at the, the rain, the, the sea. He looks at the sun, and he is speechless and he is he is overwhelmed with with despair of life under the sun verse 8 man is not able to tell it look at this the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing when I read that I think of the old saying hear no evil see no evil speak no evil this is what it is, hear, see, or speak. As a man, as creation, when we look at nature and we look at history, we look at the generations that go and the generation that comes, we cannot be satisfied. Let me give you an example. If you were to stand on the edges of the Grand Canyon, never been to the Grand Canyon, I would like to go to the Grand Canyon. I've been to some other beautiful places in this earth, but if you were to stand on the edge, on the rim of the Grand Canyon, you will not say this, I am the greatest creation in all the world. You don't say that, do you? What do you say? I am so small. I'm nothing but a man. I'm small in comparison to what is out there. The psalmist writes in Psalm 144, it says, Oh Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is but breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Well, look at your neighbor right now and say, Boy, am I having fun today. Well, Solomon's not through. Life without God, life under the sun, rejection of God, life is pointless, life is, is, is tedious, Life is unfulfilling, and then lastly, life is insignificant. Life is insignificant. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, it says this. 
that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Verse 10, is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Solomon says, no, it's already existed for ages which were before us. This is what Solomon says. Solomon says, do not think that you are so smart to think that you found something new. Because it's already there. It's already there. Somebody could say, well, pastor, I know that Solomon had no idea about battery-operated vehicles. You may be correct, but he understood transportation. And it's the same thing. From point A to point B, that's transportation. Are you with me? Do you feel better today? One older gentleman told me this and said this regarding uh, uh, watching those who come behind him and, and how those, uh, in, in his words, those in their 20s think they know everything. Those in their 30s definitely think they know everything. And then as you get older, you realize how dumb we were when we were in our 20s and 30s. And this gentleman said this, our generation never got a break. When we were young, they taught us to respect our elders. And now that we are older, they tell us to listen to our youth. Isn't that true? One of the things we hear today, uh, uh, older generations will hear, listen to the millennial generation. Have you heard that before, teachers? Listen to the millennials, listen to the millennials. Why don't they listen to us? That's kind of what you think. I mean, that's what, that's what the argument is here. This gentleman went on to go to say this. When I was a boy, I used to do what my father wanted. Now I have to do what my boy wants. My problem is, when am I going to get to do what I want? I mean, that's the struggle of life. But life under the sun seems so insignificant. Verse number 11. And look at this one. There is no remembrance of earlier things. And also of the later things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Write this in the margin of your Bible on your notes. Write this word, amnesia. Here's the reality. You and I are going to die. And people are going to forget you. I want to let you in on a little secret. Being a pastor, one of the things that I'm fortunate to do and blessed to do as part of my calling is to oversee funerals. The overwhelming majority of funerals will be less than 30 people in attendance. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. I have done funerals for where only four people showed up. I can count on one hand where I've done a funeral where over a hundred people showed up. Are you getting the picture? Listen, when you pass away, people forget about you. And those who come to the funeral, only about 10, 15 of those are going to go to the graveside. Because here's what's going to happen. People will come to your funeral. Typically, it's around the lunchtime frame. So that people can come to the funeral, 
take their lunch break, and once the funeral's done, they have to go back home, they have to go back to work because somebody is filling their spot. Does that make sense? This is brutal, isn't it? Pastor, you are mean. You are just flat out mean, Pastor. No, the Bible says there is no remembrance of those things. Younger generation, listen to this. We fight to get a presence on social media so that somebody will like our comment or our picture. Do you not know that as soon as they like your comment or whatever, they're off to somebody else's comment? And so you live for somebody's click? Think about the vanity in that. Well, I want people to like this. They will like it and move to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing. And this is what Solomon is saying. You live for these things, but there'll be no remembrance of earlier things. Many of us in this room, we know that Alzheimer's and dementia is one of the cruelest things to happen to individuals and to families. But the reality is it's going to happen from this world toward us. And the things that you strive for on this earth, under the sun, remember this, remember under the sun. Under the sun, what you do under the sun, you cannot take that with you into eternity. It will be gone. And Solomon says, what's the advantage? What's the advantage? What do I gain from this? Well, look at verse 12. Starting in verse 12, going all the way through chapter 2, verse 26, we start to see an autobiography, and we'll talk more about that next week. But let me just finish chapter 1 and watch what he says about all of this observation of life. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, verse 13, and I set my mind, that literally means I set my heart, to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Same thing as under the sun. Look at his conclusion. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. That phrase, sons of men, in Hebrew, it literally means sons of Adam. This is, this is everybody Verse 14, I've seen the works that's been under the sun. Behold, it's vanity, striving after the wind. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What Solomon means is this, utopia cannot be found on this side of heaven. Utopia cannot be found on this side of heaven. Secular humanism can, will not lead to utopia. Throwing off the restraints of God's commandments so that you can live however you want to live, love whomever you want to love, do whatever you want to do, that will not create utopia. It can't create utopia. Why does it not create utopia? Because Solomon tells us what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. What does he mean by that? What he means is that because we are living in a sin-filled world. 
And life under the sun, a rejection of God, will never straighten that which is crooked. There is only one man and one way that can straighten that which is crooked, and that man's name is Jesus the Christ. But utopia will never be found on this side of heaven. Do not listen to the politicals, the politicians who believe that, that utopia can be found here. Do not listen to the philosophers who think utopia will be found here. What do I mean by utopia? Utopia means ultimate freedom and ultimate happiness, and you can live however you want to live, and it will all be good. Well, Solomon says, no, that's not how it works. And from here on, in the rest of this book, Solomon is going to say, I'm going to share with you what my life was like and how I sought purpose, how I sought meaning, living my life under the sun. What do you think he's going to find? It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be very, very sad. Now, I've had several people over the past couple of weeks, or really since I started this series, They've asked me really kind of the two questions. I kind of boiled it down to two questions about this. And this is how I'm going to close this morning. I've had several people ask this question. Pastor, why are you preaching Ecclesiastes right now? And my simple response to that question is this. Because our world is broken. Our world is broken. And we are living in a time and we are learning that we cannot fix our brokenness. And America is learning the hard way, are we not? Just look at the venom, the hatred, the cancel culture. It's in our world today. We are living in a broken world. And so many of us, so many in America, so many in the world have been trying to solve the problems of this world without God. And that will lead and continue to lead to meaningless. And Solomon says trying to solve the world's problems without God, it is vanity. It is meaningless. It is futile. I mean, when you and I, when we cannot get senators together to have a conversation with one another, we've got problems, amen? I mean, if, if our children acted like some politicians, well, that's another, that's another sermon. So why Ecclesiastes now? Because of this. What we're seeing, what we saw in 2020, what we're seeing in 2021 is this. The American dream isn't all that it's cracked up to be. It's not all it's cracked up to be. The searching, the, the collecting, the gaining, it doesn't satisfy. For such a long time in our country, and I would be guilty of this as well, is that for so many years the American dream has been many people's God. health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, I'm all for those. I like those things. But when that becomes my God, then all is vanity and all is futile. 
So in my opinion and in my walk in prayer time with the Lord, I believe the book of Ecclesiastes is extremely relevant today. Let me share with you what Charles Spurgeon said in his lecture to students. Spurgeon, known as one of the greatest preachers of all time, he said this to his students who were becoming preachers. He exhorted them with these words, I know of a preacher who is great upon the ten toes of the beast, the four faces of the cherubim, the mystical meaning of badger's skins, and the typical bearings of the staves of the ark and the windows of Solomon's temple, meaning he was majoring in the minor things. Then he goes on to say, but that preacher, but the sins of the businessmen, the temptations of the times, and the needs of the age, he scarcely ever touches upon. And such preaching reminds me of a lion engaged in mouse hunting. Simply put, that type of preaching on the minor issues is irrelevant. We preach that which is relevant. I firmly believe with all of my heart the book of Ecclesiastes is relevant today, and I believe this, that this is foundational to reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it tells us what the end result is of those who live their life without Jesus Christ. We have a hope. We have reason to live better, and that reason is Jesus Christ, and we need to let people know. Number two, and then we're going to be done. Here's the second question. Pastor, why don't you preach something more encouraging? We need some good news today. Do you be in agreement with that? Don't answer that one too quickly, please. Pastor, we need some good news. Well, to that question, I say this. You can't have good news until you first have the bad news. Amen? You can't have good news until you first have the bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to save us and deliver us from our sins and deliver us into heaven. But that does not sound good until you learn the bad news. The bad news is this. Your time on earth is short. You have been born into sin. You have been walking in sin. Your sin has separated you from a holy God. And this holy God, through his son Jesus Christ, is coming soon. And he's going to take inventory of all of humanity. And when he returns, you will give an account of your life. And Solomon declares to us today, he declares to us over 2,000 years ago, close to 3,000 years ago, Solomon declares today, I tried living without God and it is not worth it. So today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not given your life over to him, And if you are living your life under the sun, rejecting of God, living without God, know this, you will never find satisfaction in this earth. And you will never, ever be satisfied. Because the only way that you'll find satisfaction is that you live life with God. When you surrender the right to your life to the one who died for you, when you ultimately get on your knee and you humble yourself and you say, woe 
is me. I'm a sinner. And I need someone, somebody to save me. Until then, you will never find satisfaction. If that's you, I encourage you to take the words, take Solomon's word on it. If not, you're going to learn the hard way. But today, I beg you, I beg you, turn your life over to Jesus. Turn your life over to the Son, S-O-N. There you will find satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Father, I want to say thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. One, to save us and to set us free from our sin, but also to come and bring satisfaction and fulfillment to our lives. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's anybody in this room who has been living under the sun, living without God, that they would come under conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning. And the Spirit would convict and let them know that there'll be no satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that those individuals would turn to you today and that they would bow the knee. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. And we humbly say to you, you are worthy.